anything else in creation that is put beyond critique, which means beyond discourse and discussion in relationship with other human beings, that has become an idol. That's become a substitute or on par with God. Can't have that. So I try to help students to see where are your idols? This is one of the works we're doing. Um, Where are the idols in their communities? What ideas, norms, ways of being, manners, uh, customs, whatever it is, that is keeping people, that that goes unquestioned, assumed, dogmatized, ossified. And by doing so, you have it's corrupted the Christian community and pushed people to the margins. Leonard McMahon is an assistant professor of pastoral care, spirituality, and political theology at Pacific School of Religion in Berkeley, and also founder and CEO of Common Ground Dialogue, a political consulting firm specializing in facilitating conversation around complicated social issues, bringing together divergent communities. We speak about his work addressing such issues, exploring what it means to seek trust rather than agreement, and how his spiritual life and practice contribute to these ends. I'm Matthew Wickman of the BYU Faith and Imagination Institute. Leonard McMahon, it is uh, really nice to see you today. Thank you for taking the time to talk with me. No, thank you. Thank you for having me. Good to see you too, Matthew. Thank you. Um, So I first came across you at the Conference of the American Academy of Religion and Society of Biblical Literature back in 2018, right? This is when you won the Founders Prize from the Society for the Study of Christian Spirituality, and you won it for an essay you'd written, right? And over yes. the next few years um, at that conference, I, I would see you and, and hear you, know, you in like meetings. And I came to sort of uh, kind of identify you as, a, some, as someone of kind of really a, a good, lively mind, um, but also someone with, who, who, who carried your intelligence into different areas, right? So you're obviously a fine scholar, that's why you won that prize. But also you were someone committed to social causes. Uh, you seemed to like a, like a difference maker for communities as well as for universities. And then a few months ago, we were back at that conference, uh, the 2022 version, and we were at dinner with a larger group and sat next to each other and had a great chance there to talk with each other. So I got to know you a lot better that way, which was a delight for me. Mm-hmm. So our conversation at dinner that night uh, really confirmed and strengthened all the good impressions you left with me in <laughs> years past. And, and uh, you certainly are a person of diverse talents, uh, Leonard. And it raises the question for me, of how you introduce yourself to people. With me, it's pretty easy. I'm, I'm a professor of you know, whatever at BYU, right? Um, do yeah. you uh, kind of and, uh, sort of introduce yourself as a scholar, as a community leader, as the founder of a social consulting firm, or in some other way? Yeah, no, thank you so much, Matthew. Um, and those are fond memories. I'm glad to recount those. I introduce myself uh, as, a, as a professor, as an assistant professor. I like my professional role because it's a vocation. So I lead with my vocation. And part of that vocation uh, involves being sort of a public teacher and a public minister of sorts. So that's how I consider professorial roles, is to um, be working in the public domain. Okay, great. If you fast forward 10 years, do you still imagine introducing yourself really as professor? Is that your vocation? Or am I talking in 10 years to Senator Leonard McMahon or (laughs) something else? (laughs) (laughs) Oh my goodness, no, yeah. that um, I had once considered politics, and I even considered ministry, of course, as, you, as I'm growing up and, and coming along. But no, I really realized that my vocation is uh, is teaching. I am at my best in the classroom, or or in any kind of setting where I'm working with folks and, and trying to educate. And 
I learned this actually when I was over in Seoul, Korea. It's part of my, my bio. I taught English in Seoul, Korea uh, for about a year. And over there, I realized, you know, we'd, we'd work at an after-school academy, and I, we would teach for um, six to nine hours mm. on any given day, like on a weekend, like a Saturday and a Sunday. So I could, yeah. when I started doing that, I realized, oh, I love this. This is the one thing I'll do without, you know, even if I didn't get paid for it, which I'm glad I don't have to, but yeah. yeah. Okay. Very good. Let me ask you something of a chicken and egg question. I, I know this is an artifice, but I'm, I'll pose it so you can sort of answer it to kind of open this up for our listeners. What came first for you, right? Your your religious convictions, okay, or mm -hmm. uh, your commitment to social justice? Oh, no, the religious, uh, well, the religious convictions are always there. So see, the way I, I view it is is there's always that layer. I was born to do this. It's kind of a, I'm a thinker and a talker, and it's just sort of there, natural. But the social justice concerns arose early on. Um, I had a profoundly unpleasant experience in grade school. Uh, I was living in, I'm from Detroit, Michigan, and we lived, in, I grew up middle class, middle to upper middle class, uh, African-American population. Uh, my parents were affirmative action beneficiaries and so on and so forth. Um, unlike some black conservative authors, I view it as a good thing to be part of that, um, part of that generation. So uh, going to a school, a, lot, a predominantly white school, uh, upper class school in the suburbs. So I go out there in the morning. But and I'm there with uh, mostly white colleagues, and you know we're sitting around a class and we're learning. This is first, second, third grade, somewhere around there, and uh, and so I've got all these friends, and and then we have recess. When I guess I don't know if they still have recess these days, but we would go on to recess, we go on the playground to play. Beautiful campus. Uh, this is Gross Point Academy. Mm. I don't mind saying because it's a great school, and I recommend it to anybody. Really, beautiful experience. But Gross Point Academy, and I'm out there, and we go out for recess, and all of a sudden these friends, white friends, uh, men, boys, come up to me and they say, hey, why don't you go run in that direction? I'm a little puzzled, like, why would I run? I thought we were playing together or whatever. What are we going to do? No, why don't you go run in that direction? And we'll chase you, the, you know, the, the white boys. We'll chase you down. We'll, pound, we'll jump on you, we'll pound on you, and then we'll let you up and you do it again. Utterly what? This is utterly bizarre. I'm like, what? <laughs> what am I? What is going on here? What is this? Yeah, yeah, this game is called Trigger Warning. Nigger Pile. Oh boy. So we're going to play this game, and we would like to play this game. So why don't you go do that? I didn't know on certain terms. I let them know that is not acceptable. Right. Uh, so I never actually played this game, but uh, that was the formation of that began a problem of solving racism itself, and then of course that morphed into other social issues yeah okay that's some story and that boy that would be uh unsettling to anybody but a grade schooler you know i mean that rough um so let me ask you let me kind of fast forward here um so you're currently an assistant professor at pacific school of religion and you teach in the mm -hmm. areas of pastoral care and mm -hmm. spirituality and political theology now, for listeners less familiar with that last term, political theology, can you explain what that is and what it means in your work? Oh, absolutely, yeah. Political theology is a growing discipline. It it's, uh, comes out of theology, of course, but it is a recognition, uh, at least as I, as I define it, a recognition of the fact that politics and religion are the two defining features, I would say, of uh, being a, a person in the world, particularly a person in American society. These are two fundamental driving forces, and they, the reason why is that they provide visions. They provide 
uh, analytical tools for all of us to go around. We look around either through a religious lens or a political lens. We see what's wrong with the world. And then we have a vision for how we like it to be. That's why they're so compelling, which is why you don't want to mix them because they can be explosive. Yeah. Uh, so, no, I love working in political theology. I want to work more consciously and, and explicitly in this area to make it work better than what it's doing right now. Yeah, okay. Uh, that's... Um... If you can do that, Leonard, you've done a really good work, especially in 2023 in this country. Wow. Uh, right. So there are these, yeah. when we had dinner um, back in Denver a few months ago, you mentioned some things that, that you kind of, uh, some themes, right, in your work, uh, both in the classroom, but also, you know, in your in this social consulting from Common Ground Dialogue. And these are really provocative to me. And I wonder if you could help, like, I mean, mention a couple of them. You could explain kind of what you're finessing here. It's really, it's very sure. uh, deft, but it requires a lot of skill. Here's one. You say that you have or want to have opponents, not enemies. Mm -hmm. Yeah, uh, absolutely. Yeah, opponents, not enemies. And so um, let's take Jesus' uh, phrasing off from the biblical phrase, uh, love thy enemies. Yeah, great. Uh, love your enemies. The mandate, if you love your enemies, you turn them into opponents. Mm. See, this is so opponents in a, in a democracy, the democracy is designed for conflict. This is the problem uh, that people don't appreciate. We feel like we should get rid of all conflict. We don't know. You don't have to get rid of conflict. It's designed to hold it, to make it work for us. It's a, a good tension that we should have in a democracy. You're supposed to have conflict. And so you have opponents. You have people who, with whom you disagree. You, that's natural. Uh, and that's natural in life, period, of course. And so. Um, but the problem is when they become enemies, so the word enemies, you know, is sort of not friends. The root the root of it is not friends. Yeah. That is when the connection is broken and you're no longer in a relationship. I can be furious at you, Matthew. I say, you know, I can't stand you. I don't, da, 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 but I'm still talking with you. You know, I don't understand. I can be, I'm, I'm so angry, I don't even know what to say, but I'm still connected. See, the dialogue is still continuing. Yeah. That's that's what I mean by opponents, not enemies. Okay, that's great. And that point about democracy depending on opponents, that's actually a really important point. It's easily lost. Yes. I mean, yes. So we live in an era really of zero-sum uh, sort of thinking in politics, right? It's, it's all yes. victory or all defeat. It's all humiliation of your opponent or of you. I say opponent really of your yeah. enemy because we turn these opponents into enemies in our, in our common, or in our current, you know, sort of zeitgeist, you know, political zeitgeist. Let me ask you, let me follow up on that before I ask you about another really great phrase that you shared with me. Um, this is, comes from a, something I saw on social media. Someone I followed there recently um, mm -hmm. said this. They, they remarked that politics is an arena, you know, where, where one has these kind of fights over issues that are important to one, you know. You have to argue there with opponents. However, mm -hmm. this person said, where you have opponents, you're already in the process of reducing their humanity to some position they hold that's contrary to your own, which means that there's kind of a sliding slope there, a slippery slope from opponent into enemy, right? And that's a step mm. that you try to resist. I mean, so how do you, so you, you know, so you try to turn enemies into opponents, that's great, but how do you prevent the opposite, the opponent becoming an enemy? By building trust, not agreement. Okay, that's what I was gonna ask about that, right? trust, not agreement, that's also, it's a great phrase. Can you like, please comment on that, yeah. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. No, this is the, this is the moral formation. So part of my work is, is the moral formation. That's why the pastoral care and spirituality go with the political theology. Mm. They all weave together because I'm interested in the kind of moral formation, if you're Christian, Christian formation, so on, that allows a person to be engaged with another person across difference, trusting them, but I don't need to agree with them, 
right? I don't need to agree with you. You and I, but we, I trust that you're not going to harm me. I'm not going to harm you. Without that trust, which is what is broken down, that's what your their commenter is talking about. Without that, then yes, we are on a slope downwards. So uh, we've got to rebuild that trust um, in just about all aspects of our society. That's such a great phrase, Leonard, trust, not agreement. Um, it is so difficult, um, I think, for so many people. It's difficult at a human level to trust those with whom you disagree as you feel as though things you value, things you hold sacred may not be held sacred or valued by those who disagree with you. And trusting them at some level, that is, that is a, a difficult task. Um, how do you implement that? How do you do this? Yeah, you know, I mean, one of the things is to go back to Aristotle and remember that, uh, you know, his, his definition, I'm paraphrasing here, of politics is living with strangers. Mm. Right? We've, we've got to live with strangers, people with whom we'll, we'll never meet these people. And yet I am connected to them. So Ralph Ellison in 1957 is writing a letter to a friend, uh, uh, Murray, his friend, and he says, you know, uh, democracy is the most disinterested form of love. Right? Disinterested, I mean, not uninterested, but disinterested, you know, right, it's yeah. kind of agape. So, so that is how it's done to create the ability to do that to to have um to stay connected with people with whom you'll never meet and you can hold them in regard so that i'm not so politics is not a zero-sum game in the sense that i have to win once it's devolved to that point my character has devolved to that point where i must win at all costs and trust me that will show up in my personal life not to mention my political life the people around me will be giving me feedback hey you you know want to just ease up a little bit <laughs> and learn to um, to get along with folks and so yeah now that's really that's really important uh, the personal life bit I know that um, uh, you know when when I think we when anybody um, I'll speak it personally when I get invested in some kind of political issue or cause you know yeah. where you have understandably you have allies and you have opponents right in these things um, it really does have a carryover effect on my relationships. I tend to be sort of sharper edged in the relationships. And and on the one yeah. hand, that can be good, makes me more alert to things. On the other hand, that can be really harmful. I can be uh, less patient. I can get angry more readily because the, the focus is on trying to win an argument, right? And not so much on yeah. trying to care for the people around. So you have to kind of remind yourself, right, that there is a, a, a care component. You mentioned pastoral care as being a really important part of what you do. Yeah. I wonder if you could speak then to what what forms that takes when you're working on these issues that are important things but how do you how do you mix pastoral care and with that well it begins with uh let me speak in the christian sense in christianity yeah. it begins with the sense of contingency i like the word contingency so so to become aware of my contingency in the world my fragility if you will mm. uh i don't want to take the but contingency this idea that i am not um, permanent and not as correct as I think I am. So I, I mentioned Aristotle, living with strangers, and then I moved to say Howard Thurman, uh, Jesus and the Disinherited, last chapter is Love, uh, it's 1949. And he writes that there are three things that keep, um, that should keep everyone awake, uh, awake and aware and available for connection. One, um, that God has forgiven us all the time. Right. And when we're in a relationship with the people with whom we disagree and we don't want to forgive them and we're angry and so on and so forth, remember that God has forgiven us all the time. Every second of every day with every breath, we are being forgiven. Two is no evil deed uh, completely defines anyone, just as it doesn't completely define us. 
right? So this is the humility contingency. And then the last is that anything that we do has repercussions. I mean, some people call this karma, but if we are doing something wrong, trust me, trust God, it will come back, right? Vengeance is mine, although that's a little, little bit uh, much, but life will teach a person. Life will teach us what we need to know in order to get along with people. I love and stay that. connected. Yeah, I love that line. There's so much wisdom there. And I'm so glad you referred to Howard Thurman, who's wonderful. Yeah. I, mean, I, I love, yeah. I, you know, you know Thurman better than I know Thurman. Is, but, but what I've read of Thurman, I mean, it's just it's such an inspiring thinker. Um, yeah. you, you're someone, in my observation, I'm not seeing you. We've not been, I've not been at where you live and been part of community projects. and kind of, but, I, but I have seen you at conferences and heard you talk and engage. And it does seem very much to be kind of your your way, um, right, of, of things. Um, do you find that when you work with students, for example, and you're trying to sort of teach these principles and the things that you do in the classroom, do you find mm -hmm. that students are, uh, here's another chicken and egg question, I guess. What comes first, mm -hmm. right? The principles that you're trying to sort of explain that have some kind of a philosophical basis, say in Aristotle or Howard Thurman, on the one hand, or is it mm -hmm. more um, your own disposition, kind of your own ethos, your character, that affects the mm -hmm. students first, uh, and then that mm -hmm. opens them to the things you want to teach them, principle-wise or theory-wise? Mm -hmm. Make sure I understand it clearly. So, uh, you're, so the, the the character, the students. How do I? How yeah. Do how I do you how do you communicate? You know, kind of the, this 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 very kind of delicate path you want to walk, right? And where okay. remembering yeah. that we we don't form enemies. For one thing, remembering that we we're always forgiven first and we must then also forgive. I mean, are the students yeah. persuaded by that as an idea or by seeing that in you? I and mean, it's a chicken and egg because both oh. things are there, right? But okay, well, how, how does that work in the classroom, uh, for example, for you in terms of how you try to communicate this in a way that makes it really stick? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, it has to be, it has to come from me. I, I have to cultivate it first. And, and I'm a human being like everyone else. I mean, I'm going to fail. I'm going to, you know, flail around. I'm going to need forgiveness. Uh, and but one thing I did, I did this happened last semester. That's a great question because this happened last semester. So long story short is I was uh, working. So I had this syllabus that had these readings, and, and and then at the same time, you know, it's a three-hour class. Students, we were also practicing sort of an hour of com uh, contemplative prayer, right? We would have mm -hmm. this moment. Turns out, moving through the semester, students love the contemplative prayer. They love. Let's do more of that. You know, these readings, <laughs> uh, it's okay, <laughs> but let's do more of that. And, you know, yeah. in my professorial mind, I'm thinking, well, no, look, you stick to the script. This is what we do. And I was getting really kind of defensive about it. You know, students were saying, no, we really would like to do the reading. But then it occurred to me, I said, well, let me pause. And we had a moment and a break. And then I came back and I realized I wanted them to experience the readings the way I felt. See, I was projecting myself onto students. You need to feel about these readings the way I feel about them. I'm excited about them. You must be as excited as I am. No, my only job, and I think as a, as a teacher, is to expose students to these readings. So I did. And I, and I was able to do that in real time and tell the students, okay, you know what? We'll shift. We'll go to contemplative prayer. You've, you've seen the readings, you know they are. So there we go. Yeah, fantastic. Yeah. So that's what you mean by character. Yeah, contingency, just, just self-awareness, um, depth, and uh, just non, not being dogmatic and, and, um, and clinging to things so, so, so hard, you know, so definitely. 
That's great. I love that. You know, here at BYU yeah. where I work, um, there's an emphasis really on faculty trying to be, I mean, you know, again, faculty, imperfect human beings themselves and you know, they have, they have yeah. fault riddled and, you know, sort of sinners in the eyes of God and this kind of thing, right? But on sure. the other hand, you kind of more seasoned than the students are, obviously, been through more things and, and people mm-hmm. who um, kind of embrace their convictions as, as, as Christians, as members of the church, um, and and who try to live lives that are discipled lives, and there's a there's an emphasis here on, on faculty being being examples, models in that way for students. If not, you know, every point of character. I know lots of students who are more patient than I am, for example. You know, or students who have a whole range of virtues. I wish I'm, I I had more, but nonetheless, they can see in their faculty. Hopefully, they see in me. Um, you know, people who are, who are living committed Christian lives. Yeah. Um, no, no, that's the word commitment. Absolutely, that's the word commitment. And also, in terms of Christian faith, uh, we're, we're of course very familiar with the the cataphatic dimension of our faith, right? The, the words, the spoken, the the rituals, the things that looked and sound great, and all that. And it's absolutely compelling. We want that. But there's the apophatic dimension as well. Uh, this is the mystical tradition, uh, spirituality tradition in our in our, in our history as Christians. And so. Uh, Holding on to that, that apophatic dimension, what I call apophatic edge, learning to move up to that edge as much as you can, ritually, ritualistically, or at least um, repeatedly through prayer life, that will soften the edges of our character. And right? we'll begin to become a little bit more porous, a little less, uh, a little less opaque. And, you know, so, yeah. so that, that builds up the contingency part that allows me to go, oh, okay, you know what, what's going on with me? Oh, I know what it is. Yeah, da 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 da. See, yeah. have those moments. Okay, good. I'm glad you mentioned this. Uh, some listeners may not be as familiar, actually, with the term apophatic, but it's so apophatic. crucial, right? Can you explain that for us a little bit? Because you're making a great point here. Yeah, absolutely. So cataphatic uh, just simply means, um, you know, with words or spoken with words, and, and, and apophatic means without, right? Yeah. Without words. There is this away from words. So that's a, a real dimension of the Christian faith that often, you know, isn't taught. And, and again, you certainly can't have a church, an apathetic church. It's kind of hard to do that. <laughs> no, <laughs> yeah. So it's hard to, it's hard to get, get accustomed, but it is a, a part of the faith that it needs to be practiced daily, regularly. Excellent. Good. In fact, when you mentioned uh, a few minutes ago, that you were teaching uh, this class and you had readings, but you also had this sort of point in classes for contemplative prayer. Right, mm-hmm. that kind of fall more in that latter category, and I guess it leads me to this question. Let me ask you about kind of the spiritual component of what you do. You know, because you're a professor of spirituality, right? Um, this being one of the areas that you teach at the Pacific School of Religion. How does spirituality influence how you deal with conflict? Either how you conceptualize it or how you teach it. What is what? How does that work uh, for you? Yeah, spirituality and, and political life conflict are absolutely one and the same. There may be two dimensions of the same coin. So what I mean is, um, so in a democracy or in life generally, just to say life, uh, we're always in relationship with people, which means we're always in some kind of tension, right? Because we're always different. We're always, there's some some gap there, right, between aspirations and reality. And, and so learning to sit with that tension, but also to... Um, sort of deepen the capacity to hold the tension through a certain kind of spiritual practice and uh, be with ourselves and also to make those connections. So so John Rawls and, and Habermas, Jürgen Habermas are two of the figures who have, for example, in political life, who, who want to, in political life, um, seek an exclusive space, a, a place where there's this perfect agreement and and, and concert right between yeah. people. So either through democratic procedure or some kind of whatever it is. 
This is a place where we're not going to fight anymore. There's no more tension. The tension has ended. But spirituality, this engagement with the mysteries of the faith, this leap of faith, as Kierkegaard puts it, that constant practice, that daily work, is what gives us the capacity to stay in what I believe uh, in the tension. We don't need uh, to get rid of tension in all the conflict, as I mentioned on my website. Uh, with con don't get rid of conflict, but learn to be with it more. Um, yeah, and, and, and so that's, that's where spirituality comes in. I love character. that. I love that, Leonard. You know, sometimes you hear from people who are, are not religious, you know, but you'll hear criticisms, you know, that religion gives people crutches. It gives them kind of like false beliefs, false hopes. I find actually the opposite to be true, that religion often really instills in one kind of the, the recognition that one needs to acquire capacities one does not have yet. Capacities, for example, right, to sit with conflict is one classic case you just mentioned. Uh, yeah. th these things are difficult and they're not easy, right? Um, that's my experience. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, if, if religion for one, I mean, spirituality is the lived experience of religion. So that's, I mean, academically, that's what it is. And so if one is uh, sort of just engaging with the faith as if it's set and, and certain and I'm just going to do these things and I just perform these things and it's dogmatic and it's automatic and so on and so forth, and there's no life in it, right? then, yeah, of course, I'm going to get defensive when it's challenged by whomever and however, right? But if I'm engaged again with the mysteries of the faith, the leap of faith, how do I every day wake up and decide, okay, yeah, I'm still a Christian. Let me think, you know, why am I, why am I a Christian? <laughs> yeah. right? I, I got to do that every day, yeah. uh, as Paul, as Paul, uh, you know, recommends. Then that is um, going to provide the fertile ground for, for, you know, relationships, good relationships in life. That's great. Um... Let me ask you about your students here, right? So I know that you work with different groups, right? Common Ground Dialogue, you do things with communities, but you're also a teacher, a professor, it's your vocation. Yeah. And I, I love working with students, right? They're, they're open, they're hopeful, they believe they can help make a better world and all these things, it's, it's wonderful. But students you know, at that age, you know, they also need to be more idealistic, maybe a little mm -hmm. more binary and breaking things down instead of good and bad, you fight for the good and you're not for the bad. And what you're trying to teach involves really negotiating these really subtle positions on issues that are often difficult issues, right? Um, where you can learn, you know, kind of trust, not agreement, opponents, not enemies. And you're taking your words here in this. How um, do your students handle those kinds of subtle lessons? Sometimes not well. Sometimes not well. I mean, and this is true for anybody. I don't want to just single students out. Sure. But, but yeah, no, it's true. For, I mean, it, it's like all of us i mean we get stuck in various places and so um the place where we get stuck by the way it's another way i kind of put this is the place where idolatry begins so what i mean by idolatry is okay so you know god is the only uh aspect of existence that is beyond critique beyond reason beyond comprehension that requires a leap of faith right the unquestioning it requires that 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 dimension uh, or even the wrestling with but that leap Anything else in creation that is put beyond critique, which means beyond out discourse and discussion in relationship with other human beings, that has become an idol. That's become a substitute or a, on par with God. Can't have that. Yeah. So I try to help students to see where are your idols. This is one of the works we're doing. Um, uh, one of the work, one of the things we're doing right now with the students in pastoral care is to identify uh, through the case study method where are the idols in their communities, what ideas, norms, mm -hmm. ways of being manners, uh, customs, whatever it is, that is keeping people, that, is going, that goes unquestioned, assumed, 
dogmatized, ossified. And by doing so, you have it's corrupted the Christian community and pushed people to the margins. That's This is the very beginnings of oppression and injustice is when they have idols that get that are outside of the discourse or when people are not enfranchised and franchised to come into that discourse and talk about the nature of the community. This is Ralph Ellison's uh, point with Invisible Man, by the way. Ah, uh, beautiful. That's a great exercise, by the way, for a class is to sort of identify where the idols are in any given mm-hmm. community, discourse, society, culture uh, yeah. issue, right? That's a, that's a great, that's a great exercise. Um, let me ask you, I, I, I love talking with you. Uh, you're, 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 you're really kind of a, a light bearing soul, uh, Leonard, in so many ways. Oh, um, religion's obviously a very important part of who you are and it makes it possible for you to do what you do. Um, but it doesn't, see, and it's been part of your life, you mentioned that, but it wasn't necessarily part of your early years in college, right? So you've got, you've been to, you've been to Michigan State as an undergrad, then you were at Harvard Divinity School, and you've been to UC Santa Barbara and Graduate Theological Union in Berkeley, so you've been through different institutions. And, and when you were at Michigan State as an undergrad, you um, earned a bachelor's degree in international relations and political philosophy. Okay, mm-hmm. no religion there on the at least on, on the degree. When did the religion enter the picture for you, really, as not just part of who you are, but as a vocation for what you want to do in the world? Yeah, this is interesting. So, um, so I'll back again from Detroit, and my parents uh, are lawyers, they're attorneys. Yeah. Okay. So is my dad, uh, my by re- the way. So, yeah. Is that, yeah. Okay. So, you do, so this might resonate. And then, and then, uh, and they divorced, you know, and then they remarried lawyers. So I had this whole legal team for a while, right? There's four, four people into different kinds of law. Oh, it's tough on you as a team, man. I can never imagine right now. Yeah, you know what I mean? Exactly. And so I'll go home. You know, you can imagine what the dinners were like and things like that. <laughs> yes, I can. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. And, and so that was great. So I was supposed to go to law school. That's what my mother said. You can be anything you want as long as you get a law degree. Okay. You yeah, know? it sounds familiar. So, yeah, yep, yep. So I'm going through Michigan State. I'm doing this. And then I go to Howard University for an MBA. And I'm in the MBA class. And then what happens, though, is that, like these business school uh, curriculum, they they require one ethics course. And I took one ethics course. Uh, I think it was at the Howard School of Divinity, actually. But I took one ethics course. And, and I, instead of learning how to sell widgets, I started asking questions, why am I selling this widget? What, <laughs> what, what am I doing this for? And that was the ethical dimension that all of a sudden burst out of me. Okay. And I completely switched over to Howard School of Divinity, left the MBA program, uh, and then from there to Harvard Divinity School. Okay, all right. You know, I joked about my about law school being kind of the path in front of me. My, I want to make very clear, my parents were always so supportive of what I wanted to do. I, you know, I had three degrees in English, uh, English, bachelor's degree, master's degree, and PhD. And my yeah. dad will tease me. He'll say, I can't believe they pay you to teach novels, <laughs> you know, kind of thing. Exactly. <laughs> you know, but, exactly. but, but a lot of my work really was born on the same kind of sense of, of wanting to sort of really address large questions that would be difficult to answer in a purely practical real world setting you want to sort of give time to think them through and work them through and their historical complexity and their philosophical uh, nuance and this kind of thing and for me academia was the right way to go um, but your story about that about that ethics class you know from how do I sell this widget to why am I doing this that yeah. is such an important question that we try. I mean, anybody who's able to ask that question of themselves at a formative stage of life is a very fortunate soul. Absolutely. It is the question, actually. And so with the consultancy, um, you know, I have something called the truth method. 
and I'll be presenting at a Princeton Theological Seminary next week, as a matter of fact, we talked about this, for yeah. the uh, Center for Contemplative Leadership Conference. Uh, but the, the, the method involves getting people to ask why. It's a very gentle method. Uh, and I remember, you know, as a matter of fact, when we were, when you heard me, uh, we were at the AAR in 2018 doing the Founders Prize and all that, I was, I was speaking on that. This is, I think we, we engaged on this a little bit as well. The origins of Christian spirituality are dialogical. Mm-hmm. And they come out of the classical setting, out of the Greco-Roman world, right? I mean, it didn't just fall from the sky. I mean, these things were were, were uh, adopted and adapted and so on. So so the, this dialogue between friends that occurs between you know, Seneca or Cicero or something like that becomes, through St. Anthony, a dialogue with God. I'm talking to God. So then that becomes the whole spirituality tradition, right? you got mm-hmm. Teresa and Julie. you got all these dialogues. So what that does, though, um, kind of where I'm going with this is that we need to have um, uh, the capacity to sort of uh, be able to sit with and ask why, right? To, to be able to dialogue, why am I doing what I'm doing and I'm engaging with what I'm engaging? And in the method, we bring other people around so you're not doing it in your own head. People are asking you the questions, mm. uh, asking you why. And what's interesting is people will say, well, it's my values. That's usually where most conflict resolution techniques end, my values, which is great, no problem. But then why those values? Mm. And if I say one last thing, inevitably what happens is that the ground softens, the voices slow down, the vulnerability arises, and the person all of a sudden cracks open. And then that's the point of connection and relationship. And that's whole thing, the whole community changes at that point. Oh, and everybody great. takes a turn doing this work. That's fantastic. I like that so much. You know, this is an ecumenical podcast. Most of my guests are Christian. They come from a wide variety of Christian faiths. And I rarely engage in kind of overtly political discussion with my guests, though I have spoken with people who identify with the left and those others who identify with the right. And, um, I'll ask you this, because political issues end up being central to your work, right, and what mm-hmm. you do in these dialogues, I'm wondering how you negotiate tensions between your faith and your politics. Uh, do you ever find yourself having to negotiate complicated issues between them or, or pick sides? Do you ever find the tensions irresolvable, or do you find ways to make them, uh, um, to, to, to find this middle ground space even for yourself? <sighs> No, you know, that's the thing. That, that's kind of going back uh, to the beginning of circle, your, your opening questions. Yeah, there really is no... So, so the separation of church and state is so very popular in our culture, American culture. Uh, it really is not a personal ethic, right? I mean, it's not the way... Unfortunately, it's become this private and public. You know, you do your religion, your private life, and your public life, your job, or whatever. That's unfortunate because it's really just uh, separating, uh, getting, you know, taking police powers away from the church essentially, as it goes through modernity. Uh, that's the point of it. It's not a personal ethic that an individual is supposed to live out. And so there really is no separation okay. of within life. These things are, and, and that's, and Sue, that's exactly what happens. People think they're separate, and then all of a sudden, something happens, and they're energized, and there's a crisis, or whatever it is, and they can't sort out. Hmm. They're, they're trying to separate which, which was, whatever wasn't separate in the first place. Hmm. You know, some issue comes up, I mean, we have, you know, abortion or whatever it is, I, boom, all that stuff or something rises and they're going, whoa, wait, wait, wait. It, it, yeah, it was never separate in the first place. Folks. That's right. why we're having difficulty talking about it. Excellent. 
which brings us back to opponents, not enemies, and yeah. trust, not agreement, right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, and the trust. Fantastic. It's yeah. so great. Let's ask you one more question, uh, Leonard. Mm-hmm. So, if, if, if you try to gaze down the road a little bit, um, you know, where would you like to see your work take you over the next, say, ten years? Um, is there an issue or a, a subject or something out there that seems maybe a little bit too large for you right now, but that you'd like to acquire the capacity to address? It could be too large professionally, like not yet, or it could be too large just philosophically. It's too big for me right now, it, or too, or, or or it could be just too. It'd be beyond you spiritually. Uh, you know, maybe is there? Do you see yourself going to a place where, in ten years, you'll have a capacity to do something that maybe, at this point, is purely prospective? Yeah, I would love to just enlarge my the public dimensions of my work. I would love to. I mean, I have books published and, and be able to speak anywhere. I would love to go wherever anybody invites me to speak uh, or teach, and really teach, just to work with people. Um, it could be Capitol Hill. Uh, I wouldn't mind working on Capitol Hill. I have experience on Capitol Hill. Um, and and but really, it is just about being available to to teach anywhere and as often as I possibly can. I'm like Emerson. I kind of want to. I just want to die, you know, doing yeah. doing that same old thing. I mean, just get old, just you know. And I, well, I'm gonna be morbid, but yeah, just <laughs> kind of. That's it, folks. Good night, boom, and I'm done. You know, that's, yeah. <laughs> that's it, at the end of a lesson or something. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, I think I think your voice is such an important voice to be heard, Leonard. And I think that you can do so much to to help um, people uh, kind of wrestle with and ultimately negotiate such complicated things. I wish you nothing but uh, success. Really, I wish you God's blessing in your work. Uh, thank you so much for what you do and for the time to talk with me today on the podcast. It's been a delight. Oh, yeah, it's been a delight. Thank you so much, Matthew. I would say likewise. It's just a pleasure to see you doing what you're called to do. Uh, and so thank you so much for being who you are. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Faith and Imagination podcast. This podcast is sponsored by the Faith and Imagination Institute, the BYU Humanities Center, and the College of Humanities at Brigham Young University, and is produced and edited by Sophia Snyder and Bobby May. The music for this podcast is composed by Ethan Wickman and is performed by Nicholas Phillips and Albany Records. If you enjoyed this episode, please leave us a review on your podcast platform. And if you're interested in other episodes, check out our website at humanitycenter.byu.edu. Thanks again for listening.